If you'll take your Bible with me this morning, if you'll open to the book of Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 5 through verse 18, 14 verses. I want you to follow along with me. Beginning in verse 5, Hebrews chapter 2. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you were mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God might taste death for every for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. That's functionally, vocationally, not morally. Make perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are, not, are, are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying... I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." And release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted. This morning, I want to ask the question as we consider this text of Scripture, why Christmas? I realize that that's a pretty basic question that most of us might think we know the answer to that question, and I think probably many of you do know the answer to that question. But even if you know the answer, I hope that today will be a reminder of what this season is really all about. And it will cause you to go back and to think about what Jesus did in coming from heaven to be born in Bethlehem. And I'm praying that others of you will hear a part of the Christmas story that maybe you haven't considered and maybe you haven't thought about, but you need to consider and you need to think about this text of scripture that I've read to you this morning, I know is rather lengthy, and there is no way that I can cover and explain every verse that's in this text. But I hope that over these next few minutes that if you'll take some notes and you'll write down some of these points of this outline, that you'll begin to understand what the writer of Hebrews is communicating to us when he gives this long section about Jesus and about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and how he explains to us why Christmas? 
and how he helps us to see an aspect of Christmas that often we don't think about and yet is the reality of why Jesus had to come in Bethlehem. And we're going to build this message around three major points. If you're keeping notes, around three major points. And point number one is what we'll call our original dominion. Our original dominion. I want you to think about what's written here, beginning in verse 6, 7, and 8. The writer of Hebrews quotes from an Old Testament passage in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. And it's a passage of scripture that was written by David, the shepherd boy. You can imagine David as a young man tending his father's sheep. And he's got them out in a pasture field somewhere, and he's been spending the day with them, making sure that they had water and they had plenty of pasture from which to graze. But now it's nighttime, and he brings them into the sheepfold. They're going to be safe inside that fenced-in area, that boxed-in area, that sheepfold. And David's going to sit there in the gate to that sheepfold. Or maybe he's going to lay across the front of that sheepfold so that he is the doorway into that sheepfold and he's the doorway out of that sheepfold. And David is going to make sure that none of the sheep get out and going to make sure that no wild animals get in that can harm the sheep within that sheepfold. As he looks up, either sitting there looking up or maybe laying back on the ground across that doorway, that entranceway, he looks up into the sky above him and he sees the most incredible beauty that you can possibly imagine in the night sky. He sees the wonder of the moon as it reflects the sunlight and he sees the beauty of that moon as it's shining down on him. There is no way that David could have ever imagined that thousands of years later, one of the astronauts on the Apollo would take a copy of the Word of God that included this psalm, Psalm 8, and leave it on that very moon that he was looking at that night. He looked up into the sky and he saw the stars, more stars than he could ever possibly imagine to, to count. There's no way to be able to count the stars. They're innumerable as far as a human is concerned in being able to count them. And they look like diamonds that are set against that dark background and they're all glowing in the light as if they're flickering in the glow of that light in the beauty of the heavens that are above. As a matter of fact, if you'll let me just read from Psalm 8, the writer of Hebrews only quotes a portion of it. He quotes a portion that comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But I want you to listen to it in the original Hebrew. And I want to back up one verse, and I want to read the verse that goes just before the ones the writer of Hebrews quotes. David writing says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And David is looking up at the beauty and the majesty of the sky that's above him, and he's wondering at the work of God, at the creation of the Almighty God. I was looking at social media this past week, and one of our men, I hope you won't mind me reading it. I didn't ask his permission, but he placed it on social media. That's pretty public, wouldn't you say? 
And he was talking about spending time setting up all of his Christmas decorations outside of his house. And this is a little bit of what David must have been feeling on that night. He writes, this man writes, I've been working on yard decorations off and on for several days, feeling pretty cocky about it. Then I stepped outside a few minutes ago. I looked up through the brisk, clean air and realized I've got, and he puts it this way, nothing. The brightness of the moon and the thousands of stars visible to the naked eye were amazing. Despite whatever decorations I have, the money and time spent on them, nothing can compare to the heavens seen each day. He goes on, but then he finishes up, have a blessed Sunday and remember the gift that was given to us so long ago. And don't you agree? Don't you concur? When you look up at night and you look at the beauty and the majesty of the sky that is above you, aren't you struck with awe at the God who has created everything? And David is looking at that creation and David is writing about that creation. And the writer of Hebrews picks up what David had to say and he tells us something about our original dominion. But first of all, I want you to see the design. If you'll look with me for just a moment, you'll notice verse 7. It says, you have made him. Who is him? That's man. That's Adam. You have made him. I want you to understand that God created man. In spite of what you've heard from the evolutionary theory, the reality is God created man from the dust of the earth. God breathed into him and he became a living, a living soul. And he placed man in dominion over everything else that he had created on this earth. And that was the design of God. I still believe that God created in six literal 24-hour days everything that is around us and all that the Bible says he created. And I believe that the crowning jewel of God's creation was Adam himself. And you don't have to check your scientific brain at the door to realize that God is the creator. Evolution cannot prove how the world began they can't observe it, they weren't there to see it, and they can't reproduce it. And the only one who was there who knows what happened was God himself. And God is the one who said, in the beginning, God created. And at the pinnacle of his creation was this design of a man, a man that would be made in the image and in the likeness of God. Now, there's a lot of things that you can talk about when you're talking about the image and the likeness of God. A lot of things that we can discuss as to what he means by the image and the likeness of God. But I want you to know that man is not God, but he does have God-given qualities that have been designed into him by the Almighty God. As a matter of fact, if you notice back at the end of verse 7, what he says, you have crowned him, that's mankind, you have crowned him with glory and with honor. That's the design. You are not a random act of chance that took place over millions and billions of years. And that theory has led people to utter despair because they can't find any meaning or any purpose in their lives because they think they're just mere happenstance. That's not the case at all. 
in the very beginning, God designed man exactly as he wanted him to be. And he made him to be in his image, and he made him to be in his likeness. Not only the design, I want you to notice the dignity. You notice what he says at the beginning of verse 6 or right after that opening phrase of verse 6. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You remember what it said in the old Hebrew? This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It says that you visit him, meaning visit for the purpose of taking care of. What is it that you even notice who we are? What is it that you even pay attention to who we are? Why would you who have all of these stars and all of the vastness of the creation above us and around us, why would you pay any attention to us who are a little speck in the universe around us? Why would you pay any attention And yet God created man with dignity. And you know what was an aspect of that dignity? It was that God would fellowship with man and man would fellowship with God. Isn't that great news? The creator God who designed us the way we are gave us dignity so that we could have fellowship and we could have friendship with the Almighty. Suppose for a moment that You found a letter in your mailbox this week, and it was from the king of England. You say, why the king of England? Because I couldn't pick anybody out of the president administration that I'd want to come to my house. (laughs) But suppose you found a letter in your mailbox this week from the king of England, and the king of England in that letter said to you, I'm coming to your house this week. I'm coming to visit you. You know what would happen when you got a letter like that, if you were to get a letter like that? The very first question you'd probably ask is, why me? I mean, he has a vast, he has a vast uh, uh, body of people in England. Hey, he lives in a palace. He has all of the wealth that he could ever want. He'll never be without anything that he wants. He has servants that wait on him and take care of him at every turn, everything that he can possibly imagine. Why would he want to come to me in a little city in a place called West Virginia to visit in my little middle-income family and have a conversation with me? Why would he want to do that? And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. God, you are so great and you are so awesome, and you are so mighty, and you are so omnipotent, and you are so transcendent. Why in the world? You are eternal. Why in the world would you want to come and visit us to care for us? Why would you want to pay any attention to us? And yet, I want you to know that God has been visiting man since the very beginning. He visited Adam in the garden He visited Abraham, he visited Jacob, he visited Moses, he visited Joshua, he visited Gideon. You know, when you're reading through your Bible, you come to that little phrase that says, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Do you realize that most of the time when you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's speaking about the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. He was coming again and again. He was coming again and again. But then in Bethlehem, he didn't come in a pre-incarnate form. He came in an incarnate form. Why? Because God gave to man dignity. We were his design from the very beginning 
And he gave to man dignity because he wanted man to be able to commune with God and fellowship with God. We can have with God what animals cannot have with God. Because he made us to be a body, a soul, and a spirit so that we can be alive to God and we have communication with each other and we have fellowship with each other, but we have fellowship with God as well. But in this original dominion, there's not only the design and the dignity, there is the dominion itself. The dominion, that original dominion. And that dominion was to rule the earth. God put Adam on this earth to rule the earth. He was to be the king of the earth. He was to rule over the work of his hands. He gave him dominion over the fish. And he gave him dominion over the animals. And he gave him dominion over the birds. And he gave him dominion over the creeping things. My wife would like to have some of that when those bugs are crawling around the house. Gave him dominion over the creeping things. He put man here designed with dignity to fellowship with him and to have dominion. That original dominion over all that God had created. Chuck Swindoll writes about this dominion, and he says, though they started out in the Garden of Eden, speaking of Adam and Eve, were originally limited in number and had a lot of work ahead of them, they had been endowed with purity and intellect, equipped to carry out the labor in perfect submission to God, Had they remained obedient to God, he writes, they would have continued in their role of filling and subduing the earth. They would have continued to cultivate and keep the garden and eventually filling and subduing the entire world. Can you imagine? God intended and God created with design and with dignity and with dominion Adam to rule the earth under the authority of the almighty God. You know, I've tried to wonder what that was like, what it would have been like had we had that kind of dominion. And I can't help but think of some illustrations that come from the life of Jesus. Think about that Palm Sunday before Jesus was taken on Good Friday and crucified and ultimately resurrected on that Easter Sunday morning. Do you remember he sent his disciples to get a donkey, a wild Syrian donkey? And you know what it says? On which never a man had ridden. I want you to think about that for a moment. Would you dare to get on a horse that had never been ridden by man? Would you dare to get on a donkey that had never been ridden by man? And yet Jesus sat on that back of that donkey with all of the people yelling his praises and giving him glory, waving the palm branches, putting the garments down in front of him as he he came along. And all that could have distracted, all that could have caused fright for that donkey. And yet Jesus rode into that town in full control of everything that was going on. He had dominion over that animal. That's called dominion, right? Or think about when they came and they said, Jesus, are you going to pay your taxes? You're going to pay your taxes? The disciples, what are we going to do? We're going to pay the taxes? And Jesus said to Peter, what? I want you to go down to the sea, and I want you to drop a hook in the water. And that fish that you catch, I want you to look in that fish's mouth, and I want you to take out the coin that's in that fish's mouth, and I want you to pay those taxes. Now, if you're a fisherman here today, there's some pretty big fishing stories that get told. 
There's some pretty big fishing stories that get told, uh, but I dare you the next time you go to the lake to see if you can guide a fish to a coin that's under the water and then guide that fish to a hook. That's called dominion. Or think about when Jesus is with his disciples before he's betrayed in Peter comes and says, assuredly, I say to you that this night, uh, Jesus says to Peter, I should say, assuredly, I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Remember what Peter had said? I'll never deny you. Jesus says, oh, yes, you will. Have you ever tried to keep a rooster from crowing in the morning? Say, yeah, I can do that. We just kill him. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way. Have you ever tried to keep a rooster from crowing in the morning? Have you ever thought about having a rooster to crow on a timetable? That's called dominion. You understand that Jesus had dominion over the beast of the fields. He had dominion over the fowls of the air. He had dominion over the fish of the sea. And that was our original dominion that God had given to man that Jesus was exercising as the God-man. That brings us to the second point, and that is our actual dilemma. We move from our original dominion to our actual dilemma. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we don't have dominion today. We don't have dominion over all of the animal kingdom and all of the bird kingdom and all of the creeping things and all of the fish. Have you noticed? We don't have that kind of uh, dominion. We are living in something other than what God created and where he had placed Adam in the very beginning. Something is desperately wrong. Will you notice at the end of verse 8? He says, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet, circle those words, not yet see all things put under him. Not yet. And will you draw a line up to verse 5? And will you circle the phrase, the world to come? In other words, God created this perfect world where he put Adam, this place of innocence where he put Adam, where he gave him a design and dignity, where he gave him dominion over everything he had created. But something has happened. Because now he's not talking about the right now, the here and now. He's talking about the not yet. He's talking about the world that is yet to come. He's saying, you know what? You, you don't have what was the intention for you to have. Something has happened. Something has caused it to be lost. And what has happened is that Adam partook of the forbidden fruit. You know, God was not being cruel to Adam any more than when God says you shouldn't do this and you should do that. That's not God limiting us and keeping us from the enjoyment of life. That's God protecting us so that we can enjoy life. Are you all with me? That's God protecting us so that we can enjoy life. And he said to Adam, there's one tree, one tree in all of this garden, one tree. You can eat of everything else, but that one tree. What did Adam do? Adam yielded to the temptation. Actually, Adam was not deceived as was Eve. He directly and specifically disobeyed God. 
And following his wife, he partook of that forbidden fruit. And that fall plunged all of humanity into chaos, into confusion, into defeat, and into death. Humanity suffered loss in every imaginable way because of the sin of Adam. Intellectually, psychologically, morally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. You say, why is the world we live in such a mess? You realize there are counselors sitting in rooms, well-trained counselors sitting in rooms saying, "Ah, we don't know why it's this way. It was your mother's fault. It was your father's fault. It was your uncle's fault. It was somebody else's fault. It surely couldn't be your fault. Can I tell you why the world is in the mess we are in and why we are in the mess we are in? It's called the curse of sin. Why is there death? Why is there disease? Why is there destruction? Why is there depravity? It is because of the sin of Adam. Adam partook of the forbidden fruit and he plunged all of mankind under the curse of sin. Think about that. Under the curse of sin. And now even creation itself, in Romans 8, even creation itself groans because of the curse of sin. Do you realize what happened when Adam did that? The design that God had made was disfigured. Our our world became filled with death rather than life. Our world became filled with disease rather than health. Our world became filled with deserts rather than filled with lush vegetation everywhere. Our world became filled with depravity. You haven't seen the world around you. Have you paid attention to the world around you? You say, how do you describe, how do you understand such depravity? I'll tell you how you understand it. It's under the curse of sin. That's how you understand it. The design was disfigured. The dignity, the dignity that he had to walk with God was damaged. Where do you find Adam? You find Adam and Eve covered with leaves trying to cover up their nakedness because they knew now they had disobeyed God. They knew the cost and the consequences of their sin. And what are they doing? They're hiding from God. Can you hide from God? God may ask, where are you? But the fact of the matter is God knows exactly where you are. God's looking for you to acknowledge that you need him. What are Adam and Eve doing? They're hiding from God because the dignity that God gave them to have fellowship with him and to have a relationship with him was broken. But may I say where we don't often think about the Christmas story, the dominion that God had given Adam and would have given to all of his descendants, the dominion that he had given to Adam was delivered that day and it was delivered to Satan. And Satan took dominion over this world. And Satan took dominion over this earth. He said, I'm not sure I agree with you on that, Pastor. Well, think about this for a moment. You remember when Satan said to Jesus after he had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights? Remember he went out early? He went out before the, at the beginning of his ministry. He went out for the purpose of fasting and, and praying. 40 days and 40 nights and Satan comes to him. Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes to him. And how many times does Satan tempt him? He tempts him three times. And listen to what he says in one of the temptations. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now listen. 
And he said to him, all these things, this is Satan speaking, and he said to him, Jesus, Satan said to Jesus, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Who had the dominion? Jesus didn't dispute Satan's claim. Jesus didn't say in response, you aren't the possessor of that right. The dominion that had been given to Adam had been delivered over to Satan because of his sin. His transgression and fall resulted in him forfeiting his legal right to dominion. And that legal right will have to be legally regained. It was lost by a man, and it'll have to be regained by a man. God cannot redeem man without becoming a man. Thus, Jesus became the baby in Bethlehem. Think, Think with me for a moment. When Adam sinned, he surrendered his rule, his right of dominion over this earth to Satan. Jesus didn't dispute Satan when Satan said, I'll give the power of this earth. I'll give you the worship of this earth if you'll just worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world if you'll just worship me. Jesus didn't dispute that reality that they were now in the possession temporarily. They were in the possession of Satan himself. Think about Ephesians chapter 2 where the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we walk according to the course of this world, according to, are you with me? The course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air. Who has dominion? I mean, ultimately, God has dominion over everything. But practically speaking, the dominion that had been given to Adam has been surrendered to Satan. He is now the prince in the power of the air. You don't believe that? I want you to think with me for a moment. I want you to think about a pilot, just a little guy. Most of them, they're not like me. They're just little guys. I mean, they're healthy and strong and small, and they get in that cockpit. They get in a 747. They look at all of those buttons and all of those dials, everything that's there before them. They check all those things out, make sure everything's right. They start up, fire up the engines, and in just a little while, they're ready to be pushed away from the terminal and head out toward the, uh, the, the, uh, where they take off, off the, what do you call it? <laughs> the runway. They're ready to head out to the runway and to wait their moment in turn to go down that runway. They head down the runway. They get faster and faster and faster with the thrust of the engines and with the use of the air going over the wings they're able to overcome gravity dominion we're able to overcome gravity and we can fly that plane from one airport to another we can fly it clear across the ocean and land it somewhere else and the pilot gets out of the cockpit he walks down those steps He's standing on the tarmac and a bumblebee begins to fly around his head, threatening to sting him. And a bumblebee can can chase that pilot all the way to the hangar. The bumblebee can chase the pilot all the way to the hangar. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm telling you? Man has lost his dominion. 
He has surrendered it. Legally, he has surrendered it to Satan, who is now the prince and the power of the air. Listen to what one author says. We humans still have within ourselves a drive to conquer what God once gave us to rule. Think about it, the writer says. Humans try to climb the highest mountain because it's there. They launch rockets into space to walk on the moon. They map every bay and peninsula, every island and fjord, every river and wasteland to satisfy a hardwired curiosity. They dive deeper and deeper into the depths of the oceans to find just one more unknown species. We all have a built-in drive that says exercise dominion. He finishes by saying the desire is still there, but the ability damaged, damaged. Why? Because Adam partook of that forbidden fruit. The design of God was marred. The dignity of man was taken away and his dominion was surrendered. The design was disfigured. The dignity was damaged and the dominion was delivered. You might ask the question, then why didn't God just make man without a, a will, the ability to choose to sin? He could have just made man where he didn't have a, he didn't have a will. He could have just made him so he, he could just had to choose what God told him to choose. Think about what you're asking. Think about what you're saying when you say something like that. That would have turned mankind into little more than an automaton. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but you can't have fellowship with the machine. Have you tried it with your lawnmower? Have you tried it with your car? Have you tried it with any other of those kinds of, uh, those other kinds of machines that are made by man? Have you figured out that they don't talk back to you so well? Now, the people who made them, they might fellowship with you, but those machines can't talk back. They can't commune with you. They can't have fellowship with you. For there to be fellowship with God, there had to be the choice that man would make. No one really chose, chooses to love unless they can choose not to love. No one can really choose to be something unless they can choose not to be something. No one can choose to be loyal unless they have the choice to be disloyal. And consequently, God gave man the opportunity to choose. And unfortunately, man chose wrongly. That brings me to our third statement our original dominion, our actual dilemma. We are in a world of dilemma, aren't we? That brings me to my third statement and our final statement, and that is our eventual deliverance. I don't have time to take you through those 10 verses that begin in verse 9 and take you through verse 18. I can't explain to you every one of those verses, but I can tell you what the purpose of that section in Hebrews 2 is about. As one author put it, it's there to explain how the glorious Son of God was seen wearing a private's uniform and operating behind enemy lines. I like that. Why was Jesus wearing a private's uniform operating behind enemy lines? Why did he have to come from the glory of heaven and the majesty of that place to live in the mess that's called our world? Well, because of Christ's incarnation, first of all, he was able to suffer for our sins. And he became the captain of our salvation. Notice verse 9. And I like, I like these first four words, but we see Jesus. There's hope. There's hope. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. What for? 
for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Or as the old English says, for every man. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the death of Jesus Christ was only for a select number of people and everybody else was left out. He says he tasted death for everyone. Why did Jesus have to come into this world? Because the design of mankind and the dignity that he had given to us to have fellowship with him had been broken. It had been marred. And the only way to deal with it was for the perfect one, the sinless son of God, to deal with it in the sacrifice of himself for our sins, to pay the penalty of those sins. Look look what he says about it, verse 10. For it was fitting for him. It was fitting for him. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. I mean, this one, from whom everything comes and by whom everything comes. In bringing many sons to glory. To do what? To make the captain of our salvation. You know what Jesus is today? Jesus is the captain of our salvation because he suffered for our sins. He had to come in the incarnation, and in doing so, he was able to suffer for our sins, but he was able to subdue Satan. He was able to set us free. He became our liberator, not just our captain. He became our liberator. Look at verse 14. Notice what he says. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. What did Jesus do? He shared in the same flesh and blood that through death, He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Hey, I want you to know the devil's not yet destroyed, but he might as well be. He will be ultimately and finally destroyed. He came to subdue Satan like the allied troops who liberated Auschwitz and Dachau and the other concentration camps. Jesus broke through the gates of death and destroyed the commandant of death. And he liberated those that are imprisoned in fear. Do you know what people's great fear is? Their great fear is dying. Verse 15. And release those who through fear of death. Release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now look, I don't want to die. I don't want to go through the process of death. But I have absolutely no fear whatsoever about what comes after that process. Because it's been taken out. The stinger has been taken out because I know where I'll spend eternity. In his incarnation, he suffered for our sins. In his incarnation, he subdued Satan. And in his incarnation, he's now able to sympathize with the saints. Just look one more time at Verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Look at verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Do you get what he's saying? He's able to come to us in the most difficult moments of life and function as our great high priest and represent us to God and to help us in the midst of the most, the most difficult times of life. Do you realize that there's a sense in which God doesn't need to enter into our world to feel what we're feeling? I mean, he is omniscient, right? 
And as the omniscient God, he doesn't really have to enter into our world to be able to say, I understand what we are feeling when we're going through the things that we're feeling in this world. But do you know why he came into this world and why he suffered? He did so that we might know that we, he knows, that we might know that he knows, that we might know that he knows how we feel. So that I can stop and I can say, no, he is the infinite transcendent God of heaven. But he was here. And he knows what it's like to live here. Where the design has been marred. And this dignity has been taken away from mankind. And the dominion has been legally released to Satan himself. Jesus came and Jesus suffered for our sins. He subdued Satan and he sympathizes with God's saints as they live in this world. So let me just ask you as I close, so why Christmas? We often think about his birth. We often think about his death. We often think about his resurrection. Do you think about the dominion that he's promised to restore? By the way, he's not going to restore it in this world. Did you notice what he says? Again, it's not yet. Verse 5, he says, the world to come. You know that there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth and God's going to put his children in that new heaven, in that new earth one day and we will finally have dominion. That's his promise. Jesus had to come from heaven. He had to be born in Bethlehem because only as a man could Christ die for our sins and only as a man could he be made a little lower than the angels that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man. The infinite had to become an infant. The Lord of glory had to become lower than the angels. The one who, had to, the one who was the son of God had to leave his throne of the universe to enter into a stable in Bethlehem. And why did he do it? Why did he do it? Because Adam, as a man, forfeited his dominion. He marred God's design, and he broke fellowship with God. And man has to have it restored, and it can only be restored by another man, the perfect, sinless man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to finish with a story. I want you to look at Christmas not just as a little baby in Bethlehem, not just as Calvary, and not just as the resurrection. It is all of those things. But Jesus coming in Bethlehem is ultimately to give us back the dominion on this earth. Don't, don't put your Bibles up yet. You've got, you got some more scriptures coming. Think about it for a moment. There was a sermon that I was told about where there was a pastor and it was in the early days of the Salvation Army. If you're familiar with the Salvation Army, my father, my grandfather was a captain, and my grandmother both captains in the Salvation Army. But this particular man had come to England and he was preaching. He was very charismatic in his personality. He had this magnetic speaking ability so that he just drew people to himself. Not like me. He had a magnetic speaking ability and he drew people to himself and he presented himself as Jesus who had returned to earth. He claimed that he could heal the sick and that he could restore sight to the blind. He could perform other miracles. 
And people were flocking. The numbers of people had been growing. There had been a greater number all the time, all, all coming, some out of curiosity, some out of seeking what he, was, what he was offering. But they desperately wanted to be near him. On one, on one particular evening, he was speaking in a great hall in London. And in the distance, you could hear the sound of music. There was music playing in the background. Gradually, that music got louder and that music got closer. And sure enough, a Salvation Army band began approaching that hall. And they turned and they came right in that hallway. And they walked right down playing their music, right down that, right down that middle aisle, right up to the rostrum where the man was standing and he had been speaking. And he turned, the director of the Salvation Army band turned and looked at him. He said, I got a question for you. Are you really the Christ? He said, tell us plainly. And the speaker replied, yes, I am the Christ, returned to earth. And so the captain of the Salvation Army looked at him and he said, well, well then show us your hands. Show us your hands. And then they began to play in the band an old familiar song that says, I shall know him I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hands. Whatever you do, don't get the idea that Jesus laid aside his humanity when he ascended back to heaven. Forever, there is a man in heaven with nail prints in his hands and his feet because of the incarnation. And when he comes again, as he promised he would do, he'll come with nail prints in his hands and his feet. That's what it cost Jesus Christ to come to restore the design and the dignity and even the dominion. That's what it cost him. And when you see him in that first moment after you get to heaven, you're going to see not a ghost figure. You're going to see a physical body with nail prints in his hands and his feet. Long ago, God the Son stepped out of glory and became a man on Christmas Day so that the sons of men can one day step out of this world into the place of glory to be with him forever and ultimately to have the dominion that was lost by Adam in his sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? God has come to restore the design. He's come to restore the dignity. He's even come to restore the dominion. It's not yet... It's still to come, but Jesus coming in Bethlehem will make it possible one day for us to rule over the new heaven and the new earth. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? You're going to be with the rest of us? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Is the one who's coming in Bethlehem that we're celebrating, is he just another figure that's on your mantelpiece and you look at him and you hold him in your hand and you just all the little things that you do with him to play with him? Or is he really the sinless son of God? Do you really recognize what he had to do for you and for me for the design and the dignity and the dominion to be restored? He had to take on himself flesh so that now eternally, he has nail prints in his hands and nail prints in his feet. How can we give him any less than ourselves?